I think blockchain technology is so interesting and having the opportunity to track my food and see where it comes from. I think that's so cool. 65% of consumers that were shopping online in a place where they could add alcohol to their cart legally and get it delivered to their house just had no idea that they could buy alcohol online. And most of them thought it was illegal. This is Jim Mason with Future Foodcast. Uh, with me is my colleague, Sachin. Uh, we're talking with Sarah Masters from Constellation Brands. And so Sarah, um, thanks for participating in our Future Foodcast today. Really appreciate it. Um, whole point of the Foodcast, as you know, is that we're trying to get thought leaders in the food industry to discuss some of their ideas, trends, uh, and technology, uh, and actually understand what's happening in companies uh, that are changing the way uh, food is, in a sense, uh, delivered, uh, and the shape of food going forward. So with that, um, if you want to give us a little bit more background about your role in Constellation Brands as context, I'd appreciate that. So, Sarah? Yeah, thanks, Jim. So I work at Constellation Brands, which is a Fortune 500 company. It's a leading manufacturer of beer, wine, and spirits products, including Corona, Modelo, Prisoner Wine Company, Kim Crawford, and Svedka. Um, so chances are you've probably kicked back on a beach with one of our products in the past. My day-to-day -day role and focus is on driving e-commerce for the company. And specifically, my team's responsible for ensuring our marketing includes a seamless path to purchase. We don't have any dead ends. And um, that when you actually get to the retailer's site, you see all the right product information and not just a black box instead of a lovely bottle of Corona. Awesome. So yeah, that's it. So you're really, you're all, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I'll say you're the, in a sense, channel that's connecting the consumer at the retail level to Corona and uh, Constellation brand products. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. So we want to make sure that when the consumers in the e-commerce channel, whether they're on Instacart or Kroger or Walmart or wherever they might be, that they're able to find our products and understand all of the information about those products to make an informed purchase decision. So we want them to find our products first and buy them right away as opposed to maybe our competitors. Yeah, so obviously the, I'll call it the area you sit in for Constellation is a deep and growing area. I think the whole conversation will later come back into more depth on that. Just at a high level, um, talking about the food industry in general, um, which overall, not just your role, but at a higher level, I guess, I'll ask, what trends do you think are most important uh, for both the consumer and uh, Constellation? Yeah, well, I think that really has two things. Um, probably the first and easiest answer is e-commerce. Just in the last year, we've seen about five years of growth in e-commerce um, as consumers have turned to shopping online for trips that they couldn't normally make in store. And so we've seen all of that growth and then we see the growth trend continuing. Um, but another area that I think is really interesting and I even experienced in my own life is a consumer focus on transparency. Consumers really wanna know what they're putting into their bodies and how it's going to impact them. And gone are the days where they'll just blindly trust a brand and buy a product. Um, so for instance, Corona, which has the number four hard seltzer in the United States, um, it wouldn't be a hot seller like it is if we didn't share with consumers carbs and calorie count and transparency on what ingredients are in the product. 
they, they certainly wouldn't be buying it. So that focus on transparency and the true honesty with the consumer, I think is a really growing trend that anybody in the food industry needs to be aware of. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think it's funny, uh, since I'm not the youngest person in my household, I'll say what I do notice in that is that it's younger people actually have even a stronger, um, I'll call it goal to find out and understand what's in their food uh, than some of us who have, in a sense, been out there longer where we didn't have that background. So it, it does seem to be somewhat related to the generation, I guess, to a degree that they sort of demand that. And I think your need to share that information is obviously going to go up over time as well. Um, yeah, so it's been a big change. Uh, originally, we didn't um, highlight some of that information um, on our in, in e-commerce, so we didn't have that loaded into retailers' web pages. Um, and just in the last couple of years, we've seen consumers are the most questions that are sent to our um, to our like helpline are people calling saying like what's the calorie count of this product? How many carbs are in it? And so we started publishing that information on retailers websites just to increase transparency. And we've seen the volume of those calls starting to decline. Yeah, and following up on that, it, this is gonna sound crazy, but is there a difference maybe by product line in terms of the demand for that kind of information? Like the hard seltzer line, I don't know, you know, versus maybe something more traditional um, in your line, not wine, maybe wine, but maybe some of the other products as well. Um, is there are there differences um, in terms of by product line what the types of consumers are demanding? Yeah, definitely. I think it's about consumer mindset and what's important to the consumer. And like you said before, um, it definitely plays into age, and it also plays into lifestyle and then reason for consumption. So when you get consumers that are a little bit more health conscious, um, they're the ones that are raising their hand to ask what's what's in here and um, how many calories or carbs is it and for products like corona hard seltzer and corona premier that are specifically um that specifically appeal to those like better for you consumers those are the ones that are really seeking to understand that information and maybe in wine um where that information has never been as transparent to consumers they're not asking as much for that we're still supplying it where we can but there there isn't as um there isn't such like a, a almost a demand like the further word that you use for the consumers to ask like what's really in what's really in here as far as carbs and calories go yeah yeah and it is interesting and so I guess my daughter is more in line with that so she's I'll call it drinking a lot more hard seltzer than uh, varieties than I do obviously and um, yeah she is more along the lines of that profile of a consumer who really really wants to know the details before she dives into the product for sure um, so mm -hmm. anything else specific about, you're talking about the, uh, specifically hard seltzer categories and all the, uh, related, uh, I call it innovations that you have on products around that. Um, anything else about that, that you can think of that, um, is an area of focus that's changing or challenging? Yeah. You know, what I think is really interesting about hard seltzers. When you think about beer, wine, and spirits, traditionally, men drink beer and women drink wine and men tend to drink spirits and women may have like a what you would call like a girly mixed drink but hard seltzer came in and really disrupted the category by creating a product that both men and women can drink and without sort of any gender um 
uh, feelings put on the products. And hard seltzer has been growing for years. And a lot of the reason is because of what we talked about before around better for you. It's lower carbs, it's lower calories, it's a refreshing beverage to drink. But I think the part of the growth is also because both men and women can reach for it and feel comfortable drinking it in a social setting without feeling like somebody's looking at them wondering like why they're drinking that beverage that doesn't align with their gender role. And as we start um, to continue to see that growth, I think that part of it is just going to continue to be because both men and women feel good about reaching for that product for a variety of reasons. And um, the transparency that we're providing to them is kind of like the gateway for them to be able to continue to enjoy that beverage. That's interesting because um, you may know more about me than I do about me <laughs> because I went to a July 4th uh, party uh, with some friends in Rhode Island and I thought, okay, I'm going to bring something. And so what was I going to bring? And without going through all of that analysis, what did I wind up bringing was a couple of types of hard seltzer because whoever was there, it was an easy choice to say, yes, anybody can pick this. And I never really thought about it consciously, but that is exactly what was going through my mind in making that choice was that it was for everybody who was gonna be at the party. I didn't have to figure out I'm buying something special for one group versus another. So that's, that was interesting to learn about. Um, yeah, it's yeah, absolutely re- fascinating. Yeah, so it, it's, and I can see why to your point, uh, it has boomed in volume. So, and I also see that when I go out to restaurants as well, uh, just to confirm, it's like, yep, uh, you'll see a lot more people ordering that as well, um, even in a restaurant. Um, so it's interesting. Oh, the other thing I was going to ask you is talking about the product line, you have a, um, you have different ways to deliver, I'll call it the product. You, I can, uh, I assume buy it online from an online uh, store and deliver it. Is, is there that opportunity in some states? Yeah, so um, what's so funny about the alcohol category is there's something called Tide House Law. So we have prohibition, obviously. And when that ended, um, a, a law was enacted that said that an alcohol company like us isn't allowed to give a thing of value to a retailer like a, a Walmart or Kroger or whatnot. And so they instituted a three-tier system where we sell our product to a distributor who then sells it to the retailer. And so in most cases, consumers in many, many states can buy alcohol online from their Kroger or their Walmart or Instacart or Drizzly or wherever they prefer to shop. But mm-hmm. there, there are many fewer cases where we can sell to the consumer directly. Um, because that Tide House law was put in place to prohibit that activity and ensure that the retailer is the one selling like, to the consumer. So there's a few exceptions. Um, one of the ones you probably can think of right away is wine clubs, right? Um, and, and that was put in because the wineries went and lobbied Congress when these laws were getting set up to say like, hey, we're just a little guy. We're not really a retailer. We're not a big scary liquor company. Can you please let us still sell to consumers and they were like okay and there's there's like various limitations but we do have some wine companies um, from our company that sell directly to consumers so the prisoner I mentioned before sells direct to consumer and a few others you can actually go online and order right from the winery but in most cases when consumers are shopping in e-commerce they're buying from a retailer yeah so and yeah so following up on that if I think about 
in a sense, all the ways it's getting distributed. I, I don't know how it breaks out, but I assume there's some relationship between what you drive into what I call food service organizations like restaurants and so on, and what drives through the dis distribution channel to retail. Is one area growing faster than another? Um, that's a really interesting question. And I would say our one of our like where the areas where we're seeing the fastest growth as an organization is is in e-commerce. Um, but we measure it as a function of what is being sold online at our retailer partners or through partners like Instacart and Drizzly. And mm -hmm. even we're starting to look at what's being sold online through what you mentioned before, which is restaurants. So restaurants go through the three-tier system too. They have to buy from the distributor, but um, they can sell to consumers for delivery. And there's real growing popularity in getting you know, your Chinese takeout along with a bottle of wine. And consumers are starting to see a lot of value in getting all of that delivered to their home. So we're working on figuring out how to measure it. But the, the portion of our wine sales or any of our sales coming from online from a restaurant it's much smaller than what's coming from retailers with their people's grocery deliveries and things of that nature is much, much more growing. Um, so I would say that as a function of where some of the growth is coming from our organization, that's a, that's a big, um, big place. And I think that's true probably of most, um, most beverage alcohol companies. It's more of an industry trend. You know, and it's interesting because you met, talking about the laws again, you mentioned uh, there is that three-tier system to the retailer um, and also to the food service companies. But the interesting thing in my case, the laws do change because uh, I live in Massachusetts, but I also have relatives in Florida. So when I'm in Massachusetts, I go into a supermarket and I can't buy any of the alcoholic beverages, but I go into Florida and I can buy alcoholic beverages down there. So it's interesting by state how that varies where the outlets are here in Massachusetts. We're limited to what they call package stores or liquor stores as opposed to being able to pick it up at a supermarket. So I don't know if that affects um, demand or anything, but it does affect in a sense how I can buy your product for sure. Yeah, it does. We call Massachusetts a control state um, because it's managed by the state and not by the retailers. There's all sorts of crazy rules. Like um, in New York, a uh, retailer can't hold more than three liquor licenses. So oh, wow. that limited how alcohol developed and there are a lot more in we call them independent retail stores in, in the Northeast because that's how the, the liquor licenses are meted out. Yeah, you're right. It's funny because I actually had a friend who owned his own store and it turned out when he went to sell it, the most valuable thing he had was the liquor license. You know, the location <laughs> was okay. The, the customer traffic was mediocre, but the liquor licenses were worth a ton to somebody in that same town that needed a liquor license. That was actually the big valuable thing in Massachusetts for sure. So we've talked a little bit about um, certainly Constellation, the product line a little bit, the distribution channels and so on. Uh, let's put your consumer hat on. And as a food consumer on your side of the fence, what's important uh, when it comes to food you eat? Oh yeah, so I am just fascinated, um, like I mentioned before, by consumer transparency and understanding where food comes from. So I think blockchain technology is so interesting and having the opportunity to track my food and see where it comes from. So I actually ordered a Sitka salmon share just because I wanted to actually see like where was the salmon fished at and when was it um, brought to land and by whom and how did it make its way to my 
table. I think that's so cool. Um, one of the things you always hear about fish is that a large portion of the fish that you buy that's salmon or tuna or whatever isn't actually the fish that it says it is. And mm -hmm. so I think that the opportunity is blockchain technology to help consumers understand the authenticity of the product they're buying is really, really important. And I think that's just going to keep growing. And as a consumer, I very, very much value that. Yeah, so you're right. I think the blockchain technology is kind of like the internet enables e-commerce. It's e-commerce where the value is. The internet is, in a sense, the highway that enables that. I think blockchain is the same thing. It's the highway that can connect one end to the other. But you're right, the value for the consumer is knowing all the history and the detail. And it's interesting because when you mentioned that Sitka salmon and what you learned about it, it's very different. When I go to a store and I say, I want salmon, if I'm buying what they have on the shelf there, there is no history, there is no provenance. I just know what it costs per pound. And I might be able to ask them, how old is the salmon? And that's about it. But I'm not gonna get any detail on that at all um, for, the, you mm -hmm. know, for at least making that consumer choice to buy that. And so what I'm learning a little bit on my end more is that there is this wide variation of people who as consumers want very different things. So somebody goes into a store and says, hey, I want the cheapest salmon you've got. What's the lowest cost you've got? And they're gonna say, here it is. And then somebody else is gonna say, no, I really wanna understand was this ethically uh, uh, sourced from the right fishing methods? And can you give me information on what they call the cold chain that connected that whole thing? And so you're right, there's a, I'll call it a big difference in what consumers want, I guess, at one end to the other in terms of understanding what they're actually eating. And so that's changed a lot. In the old days, I think everybody in the supermarket just says, hey, where's the cheapest salmon? And now what's different is there's so many different producers of products that do follow different methods and so on and have different stories to tell. And then there's, on the other hand, consumers that are actually interested in all that stuff now. So it is a big shift. And I assume that you have some way to see that shift on the e-commerce side a little bit. Yeah, I think that um, some of the things that we're seeing on the e-commerce side with consumer shift is the, the market is, um, is going upscale, it's going, we call it going high end. And we've actually aligned our product assortment with the high end, with the consumers that are buying in the high end. So there, that's people that wanna buy premium beer like Corona Modelo, or that wanna buy more expensive bottles of wine to enjoy, or perhaps like a finer um, beverage like High West whiskey. And the, the thing about that that I find really interesting is in general, we're seeing like the amount that consumers are drinking, like beverage discussion is declining a little bit. And the quality of beverages that consumers are purchasing, if you quantify it by the cost, is increasing. So the overall amount consumers are spending might be relatively flat, but what they're choosing to put into their bodies is getting a little bit more premium. So I think that um, with with how consumers are thinking about what they're purchasing, it's it's really changing. And while consumers might be thinking about like where do my salmon come from or where my products come from, there's this overall trend towards premiumization and wanting something a little bit better than maybe like the mainstream or lower end products that you might just go into your grocery store and buy um, 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. That well, I can say in my own family, we see that behavior for sure. Um, thinking about that a little bit um, and getting back to I'll call it your view on food, uh, food industry, I'll say, uh, following up on uh, 
the concept of changing preferences. Um, can, can you tell me a little bit about, um, I'll call it the changes on the product side that have, have been happening uh, in the process, maybe a little bit uh, to support those changes in demand that you see? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I obviously am an e-commerce professional, but I do sit near our research and development team. And um, when we were still in the office, I, I would constantly swing by their desks because I think it's just fascinating to see how these products are developed and how the ideas change um, to better align with what consumers are looking for. So we might, we might start with an insight like um, uh, Americans are looking to connect with each other in an authentic way that doesn't have anything to do with Hollywood and big business, right? And then from there, we'll start thinking about how can we develop products that helps consumers facilitate that connection? And then how can we bring it to life in, in a true and authentic manner? So we have a product called Two Lane. It's a beer and it was made in partnership with country music star Luke Bryan. And it was so interesting to see how even the packaging changed over time. Um, it's called Tulane because the idea is that it celebrates those like two lane roads that you find in small towns across America, right. kind of a, a salute to the idea that you're, that those two lane roads are what take you home. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, like most people live off of two lane road. And it was really neat to see how the packaging change to actually incorporate a two-lane road right on the front of it um, and then staying true to the authenticity that they were looking for from that original insight. They don't have Luke Bryan's face splashed across it, even though it would be extremely recognizable by consumers and might sell a few more beers to start with, but they do have his signature on the bottle as a, his stamp of approval and a sign of that partnership that he has in the product. And I just, I think it's so cool to see how they've like created a really iconic image with that. And they've, they've used the consumer insights and like talk to consumers to see how they can bring that to life and celebrate his partnership with the brand. And also like the authenticity of celebrating the connection that people have with each other. That's true and authentic and real. Actually, that is a huge topic. Um, it's, it's unbelievable, but you're right. It obviously you're a part of this uh, for a constellation, but it's a matter of really understanding in depth who are your consumers, what do they care about, how do they identify themselves, and given all of that of what's important to them. Now that I understand that, what can I do to support their view of, uh, in a sense, what is important to them? And that so you just laid out that process with the two lane um, uh, beer, you know, going that direction which is pretty interesting yeah. so, because that was really very, yeah. that's very, it's a very, very cool idea. And to your point, I think it's going to have a fantastic impact on, uh, it really should be all marketing, but certainly beverages, anything that's, I'll call it a consumer discretionary uh, choice, maybe not so much bread or something or peanut butter and jelly, but anything that's a discretionary choice, it's a brilliant idea to in a sense identify who the customer is and align with them as much as you can through, and not just the product itself, as you say, not just how I make the beer, it's a flavor that Luke Bryan likes, but bigger, the whole concept of how do you connect uh, to the client? That's a very interesting thing. Yeah, I'll tell you, um, if we're thinking about sort of like some of the challenges that we're facing today as a company, I think 
that that connection to the consumer and staying consumer led is one of those biggest challenges that we have. Um, so when you're thinking about maybe like an interesting trend in beverage alcohol, they, we have something called the fourth category. And that's not a real name because it doesn't really have a name yet, but it's the idea that beverage alcohol isn't divided into the three categories. You might think of the beer, the wine, and the spirits. There's this boom in kind of popularity and single serve canned products that cross category lines. We talked earlier about hard seltzers, but then there's canned cocktails or yeah. canned wine and wine spritzers and hard kombucha and it goes on and on. And so how do all these products come together as a category? Because when you go in store, oftentimes you can find them all on the same shelf, right? Like all the canned products, canned alcohols on the, on the same shelf. So how do we as a company create the products that the consumers are going to want in that category? And how do we watch it grow? And eventually we'll figure out what it's really called because the fourth category isn't a real name, but we don't know what consumers are going to call those products as a whole yet. And so we don't have like a real name. That's just kind of the placeholder for today. For today. If I talk to you in two years, right? If I came back on your show in a couple of years and talked to you about this again, we'd probably call it something else. Um, but because it's so new and we're just following where the consumer is going, we're still developing the products that are going to be filling those shelves and figuring out what that category is called and how to market it to consumers. Yeah, that's, that's, it's very interesting. So when you, obviously I call it consumer trends and opportunities, I'll say both are changing. So somehow you have to be able to understand that data, uh, or collect the data to begin with, uh, from sales, whatever else you're doing. At the same time, you're trying to reach us um, to, in a sense, reflect back that you understand who we are, what we care about, what's important to us and all that, and then align your product with that value set, if you will. And so from a messaging perspective, it, like you said, it's a can of uh, alcoholic beverage sitting on a shelf. Um, that in a sense is one thing. There's a label on the can, um, there may be, uh, and I'm thinking about introducing new products on your end. There's a process that says, okay, we've got this idea. It was like the two-lane beer. How are we going to take this, not just from a product concept and say, what is two-lane beer? Go ask Luke Bryan, tell him to tell you what he likes or something, make the product that way physically. But beyond that, you have to say, how are we going to find, in a sense, that market? How are we going to communicate to them? I think that must be a big challenge too. Yeah. Yeah. It's always a challenge. And it's so funny. One of the things that, that we run into is called, called the say-do gap. And so it's what a consumer will tell you. And then what do they actually do? And a, a real classic example is um, if you ask consumers, like, do you eat healthy? Well, um, most, most people will be like, yeah, of course I eat healthy. But then if you follow a consumer around the grocery store and see what they're really putting in their cart, it doesn't always line up. What they're doing doesn't always line up with what they say they're doing. And so we, we have to figure out as an organization when we're developing these products, how do we overcome that? The sort of rosy glasses the consumer might put on when they're talking about how they would enjoy a beverage or what do they want out of a, a brand that they're going to invest their dollars in for actually then thinking about, like, okay, what are they going to do really in real life? So we spend a lot of time uh, researching and figuring out how to overcome that and really make sure that we're making something that will align with what a consumer is interested in. You, actually, great point on that say-do uh, 
dichotomy because when I go to a restaurant, I ask for a burger, I get my burger, there's fries on the side, and I say I eat healthy. And of course, <laughs> the problem is that somehow the fries are no longer there when the burger is gone. And so the question is, what happened? And my answer is, yeah, those fries evaporated. Who knew that fries could evaporate? <laughs> But you're right, there is an absolute dichotomy and all of us have it in different areas uh, for sure. And figuring out what that is, that what I said is not what I really am going to do or what's important to me is a big, big difference. And it, it's a challenge. So you're right, you're collecting data, not only about my attitude, but also about my behavior that either reinforces or doesn't what, what I'm actually claiming is important. Um, and then the final thing I think is you actually can see it in the sales. Um, you know, so the sales are going to confirm that, you know, based on what we identify that where this went, you know, uh, potentially who it went to in effect, it, it is selling well, and maybe it's not selling well in another area. So you can track back through the sales as well. So that's, yeah, that's a lot to really try to understand well, if you're going to be delivering something that in a sense, we collectively as consumers want, um, that, that's a big challenge. Um, anything else on the two-lane beer story? Because that, that's a big deal. I think how you innovated that, how you aligned. How, oh, the, following up on my own question, I guess, messaging. How do you reach out to me? So here you come up with this new product that is different. It is targeted. And let's pretend I am your target for that, along with other people. What are the ways you reach out to me to let me know about this new product coming? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we use a lot of different methods. Um, to let consumers know about the Tulane product. And I, I'm sure if we had the brand team on here, they could go into like every every wonderful nuanced detail, but a lot of it was how do we use Luke um, to authentically connect with consumers? And so using his voice and his music, which is so catchy and so much of America's already really familiar with as yep. sort of a baseline to help them immediately get what the product is about. Because he sings a lot about that like, the connection and the home and like the, the togetherness and almost like the quietness of the togetherness that isn't a part of a big city. But that's like pretty much what his music is all about. So we leveraged a lot of that to help consumers know right away what this product means. Um, and it, it works really well, almost too well. And then the product right now is available mostly just in the Southeast um, US and we had our, our Facebook page for Tulane was full of consumers saying, where can I get this product? How can I buy this product? I really want this product. I can't figure out where to buy it. And we actually, um, my team created a product locator so that they could go online and go to the brand website and enter their zip code to be able to tell where the products would be available to help solve that. And the idea is obviously like, I want the consumer to buy it online because that's my goal and my function within the organization. But the idea was they could find out where to buy it online, but they could also find out what stores nearby carried it or maybe a restaurant had it. They can find out what restaurant has it so that the consumer with that product locator can be in the driver's seat to determine how they want to find and buy our products. Um, and that's definitely helped out with, with that repeat a question on every Facebook post we were putting out there so that they, so that the folks that are really connecting with the music and with the product can figure out where they want to buy it. Actually, yeah, you're right. You said it, you're putting the consumer in charge, which is where they really want to be. And as a consumer, you get frustrated when you're not in charge. When the company says, here, this is what I want to tell you, then I'm frustrated because that's not my question. That's not what I want to know. But when you say, hey, here's all the ways to find this thing, 
that is really good. And what's really interesting, although you say maybe you're helping a consumer buy it locally, all I can tell you is when I enter, uh, in a sense, uh, click on your website and say, okay, where can I buy it? And then I find the nearest place is 65 miles away. It's like, yeah, I'll be buying it online for sure. I'm not driving there. Uh, so, it, but the key thing is, um, I felt like I was in charge then. Even if I have to order it online, it doesn't matter. You gave me the choice to put me in charge, which is really, really good feeling. And it does make the consumer feel better about the brand. I mean, we all have gone to what I call Google websites, Googled something and said, hey, where can I get X? And different companies have different answers to that question. And sometimes you get frustrated when you don't get a good answer. So I think the fact that you're trying to, in a sense, make it available every way possible makes it as easy as possible for me to find it, which is really important, I think. So that's good. And the other yeah, thing- Yeah, I think a lot of times- Yeah, go uh, ahead. I was gonna say, I think a lot of times um, people expect that because I lead e-commerce for the organization that I'm always going to be champion only e-commerce. But I think that personally, my values are, I, I want consumers to shop how they want to shop. And if they are just not feeling shopping online, more power to you, like go in store. And in the end, if you're buying one of our products, that's, that's really what we're driving for. And that's where the organization will see the most success. Yeah. And you're right that in effect, you have complementary channels for the product. It's not a competition. Mm -hmm. It's in a sense to help the consumer find as, as easily as possible what their options are. That's it. And in a sense, the company wins no matter what door they pick, as long as they wind up in a sense, uh, finding out that they can get the company's products easily. That's a good thing for sure. Um, yeah, excellent. So that, yeah, that really gives me a good understanding in a sense of how you're reaching out to the consumer. The other side of it is when I think of how well you've tailored the message, it tells me also that you've done a, maybe you also, actually I wanna back up. I wanna say that it's very clear listening to you that part of this thing is you operate, but you have a set of partners, not just retailers, but as you say, um, you have distributors that are moving the product into the retail outlets and the food service chains. But you also have it, when you talk about, um, you know, Instacart and all these other places, you have a bunch of what I call digital partners that are also in your network. Um, any more on how the digital partners complement? I know you also had said, I guess you do Facebook posts as well. So there's, it sounds like there's a lot of what I call digital outlets, if I'm right, that are part of your e-commerce strategy. Is that right? Yeah, we do have a lot of digital partners. Um, so with those Instacars or Drizzly or other partners like that, they're, we call them third-party marketplaces, and they're kind of like um, an Uber, right? They, like Uber doesn't actually own any taxis or anything they just connect a driver that would drive someone someplace with a person that wants to get driven and right. instacarts and those others are similar right they don't actually have a liquor license or their own stores they're just connecting the consumer with the retailer and so we're um we're fans of those kinds of places because we're legally able to partner with them on promotions to tell consumers about our products because they don't hold a liquor license so we are not as limited as we are with retailers where we can't pay them to do marketing programming. So a lot of my time and my team's time is spent partnered with the third-party marketplaces like the Instacarts and Drizzly and helping ensure that our products can be found by consumers, whether that's through like banner ads or paid search ads or other ways of, of ways of working. Um, when it comes to like the social media aspect, that's always a wonderful channel to talk to consumers because I think, and you touched on this too, 
it's a two-way communication. So we can tell the consumer what we want them to know, and then they can tell us back what they want us to know. And it kind of creates a little bit more of a give and take than some of that traditional marketing does. So I'm a big fan of um, that kind of digital placement, and especially because you can always make it shoppable. You can have that link to the product locator so consumers can find out where to get the product, which makes me happy because then it's um, some e-commerce inclusion. Yeah, no, that's a great idea because you're right. I, I'm going for information, but then you give me the option in a sense to say, okay, if I got the information I wanted, then, hey, here's an easy way to get the product as well. So that's smart for sure. Mm -hmm. um, cool. So you helped me really understand in a sense, the different ways you're connecting, I'll call it to consumers, especially on new products and stuff. Um, yeah, that's, and I assume that advertising, as you said, with like in the case of Tulane with Luke Bryant, advertising is a part of that as well um, to highlight the fact here's Luke Bryant. He's, you know, associated now with Tulane Beer and you've got the, um, uh, whatever the marketing campaign with alcohol advertising support behind that as well. I'm guessing that there may be something with merchandising as well in, in store that supports that when it's a new product, at least for a period of time to kick it off. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's definitely in-store merchandising placements. So we always try to do something complementary to the product that, that's like resonates in an authentic way. Um, so you might see like a, a, I don't know, a palm tree, um, we always have, there's a, it's actually just celebrated its 40th anniversary. There's a O Tin and Palm um, Corona ad that comes out every, every Christmas. And it's somebody like whistling the O Tin and Palm song. And then they turn on the lights and it, the Christmas lights pop up on a palm tree and you can hear the waves in the background. And so it might be that palm tree lit up at the grocery store as an in-store point of sale, but it really connects the product with the season and in an authentic way that's authentic for Corona, right? Like a Christmas tree wouldn't be authentic for Corona, but that palm tree with the lights is. Um, and we always try to carry that kind of in-store placement online. So that's the theme in store. We'll have something similar on our product page that replicates that. Maybe we'll have the ad or we'll just have an image of the tree um, to help the consumer online connect as well because we realize that shopping is very seasonal and when we're telling a consumer in store like hey this is the product for the season we should be resonating that same message online so that's something that we're working really hard to do to make sure that our online content is seasonal and connecting with consumers in the same way as our content in store does great point and the other thing i'll say about uh, the advertising piece and i'm thinking more uh, specifically of corona at this point um, I noticed we have a, I'll call it commercials that come out and that's, I've got Snoop Dogg walking down a beach. What's kind of cool is you can have many variations of the same commercial that in a sense highlight different things to your point, not just the seasonality, but in a sense who he's handing the beer to can always be a different, uh, I'll call it segment of the marketplace from a consumer perspective, which is interesting. And so that. Oh, that's really, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting thought. I feel like with the Snoop um, partnership, it really brought a new, just just a whole new vibe to Corona. We call him um, we call him a, a maverick, and so the idea he's a he's a relaxed maverick, and so the idea is that Corona is more than just a beach beverage. It's about a beverage that you can enjoy when you're relaxing, and so we selected him to be our partner there because he's been he's at the top of his game 
right? Like he's yeah. an icon in the industry, but he's totally cool about it and chill. And there's something to be said about just owning your greatness and being cool and calm and relaxed. And so that's like one of the reasons that we really liked having that partnership with him. But I love the idea of having him passing the Corona off to the different people that might enjoy it. And it's such a universal beverage. It could be just like any number of people. Right. It's really great because especially what's really funny is the, the recognition on the message and the brand and the product when you tie it together, but you repeat it with different variations. So it's not boring. I'm not seeing the same commercial hundred times. What I'm seeing is different variations on it. And some of those variations are going to identify with me more strongly than one that might identify with you, which is fine. But it, it is fun because you're right. I think whoever thought of that campaign put it together well saying, hey, this is way we want to, we want you to identify our product with this attitude and this experience. So you line that up nicely and he's a perfect spokesman for that. And then the ability to, in a sense, because he is easy and he's chill as you say, he can talk to anybody. So literally you can keep varying those, those messages uh, up almost uh, endlessly, which is kind of cool. That's a very, very good way to do that. So um, credit to the advertising marketing teams to put all that together. Um, and, and so it is a complex deal to figure out here, I've got a product over here as a set of consumers and how do I connect and message with them in a way that matters to them, um, that'll help me reach them and help me not just have a product or sell a product, but have them in a sense, uh, have an experience that's important to them as part of that. Do you know what I mean? Like you said with the holiday thing, uh, that's a different theme and say, let's celebrate. So there's a theme to that. So it's identifying in a sense, who am I, who am I as a consumer? What's important to me in my life and how can you add to that? Do you know what I mean? When you buy a shirt off the rack, it's not the shirt that you're looking at. It's what's the what am I going to do with this shirt uh, as a set of clothes that's going to matter to me. It's so it's it's understanding how, in a sense, not just the, what the product is, but in a sense the context the consumer wants to the experience they want to have with the product as part of that, which is pretty cool. So very very neat stuff. Uh, you go through a lot on your end. Um, do you mind if we shift gears a little bit? I was just going to ask you. Uh, since you're in the commerce space and we've just, I'll call it, started coming out of the pandemic that we've had, maybe you could tell me a little bit from your perspective about how the pandemic affected both the company, the products I'll say, and maybe especially your area of marketing side. Yeah, um, I would say that um, the pandemic has had a huge impact on our products and on e-commerce. There was Definitely some pantry loading going on at the start of um, that drove some initial sales for us. But I think overall, what we've seen is an increase in e-commerce shopping just across the board. So in the United States at the beginning of the pandemic or prior to the pandemic, you might say our penetration of online shoppers, not constellation specifically, but uh, beverage alcohol in general, was about two and a half percent. So two and a half percent of the United States shopped online for beverage alcohol. In Great Britain, it was a lot higher, closer to eight, um, but still incredibly low in comparison to more mature industries like books or electronics, where the penetration is closer to say 30%. So there's yeah. a lot of runway between two and a half and 30%. And so what we saw is that during the pandemic, so many more people just became aware that they could buy alcohol online and started to do so. So in about a year before COVID, 
we did a, a study on consumers and we learned that about 65% of consumers that were shopping online in a place where they could add alcohol to their cart legally and get it delivered to their house just had no idea that they could buy alcohol online. And most of them thought it was illegal. So there was just, and before the pandemic, there was just this battle to make consumers aware. Like, I just wanted to buy billboards in major cities and say, like, yeah. you can buy alcohol online. That's, that's all I wanted to do. Um, but what, what ended up happening with all the consumers shopping online during the pandemic is that we saw about 10 years of e-commerce growth in, in two months. And now we're seeing that growth kind of pick up at the original growth rate that we expected to see pre-pandemic and move on from there. So we just got this sort of like injection of growth um, during that time frame. So what this means is more products are being ordered online, more products are being ordered for click and collect and same day delivery than in the past. And so we just have to think about how we're going to continue to offer consumers what they want online to ensure that we're meeting their needs. Yeah, so you're right. That's a, as you pointed out, that shift in <laughs> ten years down to two months. It's a nice thing to happen on the sales side. And I, <laughs> I will say, as somebody who was actually consumer during the pandemic, um, there were probably uh, I can say in my own family there were people whose I call it alcoholic beverage consumption went up significantly. It wasn't just a shift; it was also an increase. Um, so it, it's interesting. And then you're right. Now that we're moving out of that. Um, distribution changes again. But the better question is, how do you maintain um, the connection to the consumer as, in a sense, not mm -hmm. the distribution shifts, but in a sense, their situation is shifting. So maybe I wasn't, well, I certainly wasn't working with the pandemic, during the pandemic, um, on site anywhere. I certainly wasn't traveling anywhere. Um, and now all of a sudden I'm back to travel and my, my experiences are changing. And so how do you keep that connection? I think on your end is also a challenge as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's definitely something that we talk about a lot. I think a couple things there is we 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 think that consumers are going to continue to shop online. Um, maybe not every trip the way some of them might have been doing at the start of the pandemic, but the shift has happened to where they see the value of not going to the grocery store every single trip. And so maybe whereas every trip pre-pandemic was in store and during pandemic was online. Now maybe it's half and half or one in four trips are online and specific trips will be reserved for online purchase like um, stock up trips, right? Or the shoot, <laughs> I'm having people over for dinner in six hours and I don't have any food trips, right? Those will still be online. Um, and so I think that there's, there's a big opportunity to still see e-commerce happening and still see that growth but in a different way that's more realistic to the lives people actually have and actually want to have, right? They want to go out to eat and they want to go into the grocery store and get their own avocados. They don't always want to order everything online. And we're not trying to make them do that. Um, we talked earlier about being consumer led. We want consumers to shop how they want and we just want to show up where they're shopping. And we know that there's an appetite for online shopping. So we want to be there. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So you're staying connected, if you will, even as, as the uh, behaviors and the patterns for consumption shift a little bit, which is good. And it is challenging because it's always, you have to stay connected to see the data where the preferences are moving and then track, of course, not only that, but the sales as well, the sales shifts, um, which is good. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. Um, yeah, so the thing I'll say is I learned a lot 
Um, it's not <laughs> it's not that I didn't consume in your category heavily before, but what's interesting is to learn about, um, in a sense, that whole connection between myself, in a sense, and, and other consumers and, and how we represent different segments of a market and how, in a sense, companies are trying to serve us better. And certainly there's a lot of work. It's sort of like opening up the covers and saying, hey, take a look. These are all of the kinds of activities that we're trying to put in place to figure out who you are, what you want, what's important, and how we can participate to make it more valuable to you. That's a, an interesting process uh, to learn from your point, point of view. I realize you're not in charge of all marketing across Constellation, but you certainly give, gave us a good understanding, both on the product side on the e-commerce side and on the distribution side, which I really appreciate that. So I can't thank you enough for that. Most importantly though, you forgot to tell me one topic that really, really is important. How do I apply to be a QA engineer for the hard seltzer category? <laughs> you left that off. I, I can say that you weren't well prepared. You left that out and that's unfortunate for me. So I'm short of that. <laughs> Other than the fact that I don't have an application yet from you, for that uh, QA engineer. Other than that, it's really been awesome on my side of the fence. Anything else on your end, Sarah? No, Jim, thanks for your time. I'm excited to have been able to have this conversation with you today. And I'm really looking forward to listening to the other guests that you'll be having on and learning from them as well. I think this is gonna be a great experience. Yeah, and I really appreciate the fact that you've given us this time because um, there is a lot I've learned, but I think Anybody who's in what I call the food chain can benefit from just hearing these kinds of conversations and ideas that are important, um, which is really, really good. I think also um, with the outlets we're going to, YouTube, Spotify, and so on, I'm hoping that we also draw a fair number of consumers in to learn about this. Because to me, it's fascinating to learn how much uh, work goes into, in a sense, trying to help us uh, deliver something out to the consumer as well. And as you said earlier, uh, provide better information wherever the consumer wants it. Let's make it easy for them. Let's help them from their point of view, find products, find solutions in a sense and get better information all the time. So the interesting thing is, unfortunately for you, your work is not done. <laughs> I think that you'll have a lot more <laughs> going forward. And I think the other thing I'll say just for the fun of it is you see the world as it moves through digital. It does become more connected all the time. And that's a benefit for the work you're in, but it also means that your stuff is going to continually change. So it's almost like I would say, you know, coming back in a year or two, it'd be great to have another conversation and say, why don't you tell me what's different this time? What, what has happened from the consumer point of view? What's different on the company end? And tell me how maybe technology has made a difference in some of those trends as well. So. Yeah, I, I think it never stays the same. And that's one of the most exciting things about my job is it never stays the same. And the solution I have today is not going to be the solution for tomorrow. So as long as we keep in step and keep watching where the consumers are going, we'll be able to make sure that we have the right solution at the right time, which makes everybody win. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcast. Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry.